Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking seeds. There's something many of us may not think much about, despite being fundamental to our survival. Did you know that 94% of vegetable seed varieties have disappeared in the last century? Coming up, we'll hear from a botanical explorer with ties to Connecticut. He travels the world in search of edible plants, plants whose seeds are underutilized in our diets. We'll also dig into the GMO debate. But first, filmmaker Taggart Siegel and his team examine the story of seeds and our connection with them in the film Seed, an Untold Story. Siegel joins us now to tell us more. Taggart, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Lucy. I understand you're a veteran filmmaker. What drew you to do a documentary all about seeds? Well, seeds comes from basically the the trilogy that I began with the real dirt on Farmer John in 2005 was a you know it was about a maverick farmer who loses his family farm, small midwestern farm, and his struggle to get that farm back and to renew it and to revive it as an organic biodynamic farm. And he did that um, with the CSA model, community-supported agriculture model. And so I was able to be around farmers a great deal. And one thing that they didn't speak about was seeds. And so when, when I finally came to the project Seed the Untold Story, it was like, wow, there's only 3% farmers in America right now in India, it's more like 60, 70, 80 percent are farmers. In the United States, it's 3 percent. And in the 1700s, everybody was farming almost. It was just the way of life. And so what I wanted to really look into the examine that that loss of seed diversity, the 94 percent that you talk about is just incredible. That was the wake up for me. It was kind of like, how could we have lost 94% of our seed variety since 1903? And that got me thinking that, wow, there's a real story behind that because I didn't even know about the loss when we started making the film. As you watch the film, you introduce us to several people um, around the country, also those um, that are exploring around the world. But I wanted to focus in on these profiles, these uh, seed savers, so to speak. Um, I never thought about the people that are saving seeds because we take it for granted. Granted, again, we go to the store. If we want to buy seeds, they're there uh, on the shelf. or Maybe we purchase some online from a seed company. But one of the people that you interviewed was uh, Will Bonsall. Uh, I believe he's in Maine. Um, Here's a clip of Will describing how he views his work as one of these seed savers. I see myself as Noah, not God. Noah didn't get to decide whether the crocodiles came on the ark or not, or the black flies. His job was to load them on, okay? That's my job. I have thousands of varieties that I'm maintaining. People of the future, plant breeders and gardeners, they will decide, what the heck did Will save that for? I don't get to make that decision. I, my job is to keep these all on the ark, keep them alive for 40 days and 40 nights until the flood's over. 
I may discover 10 years from now that that seed will be in huge demand because it has in its genes some resistance to some disease which is only now evolving. Again, that's a, a farmer, a seed saver from Maine, uh, Will Bonsall, um, who you profile in your documentary. Tell us more about him, Tigard. How did you find him, and how many seeds has he collected so far? <laughs> well, Will Bonsall is, he's such an interesting character that we found out about through um, some great seed books that are out there. Here's this man that for the last 30 years or 40 years has been saving seeds, seeds that could go extinct in his area, especially in the main area. He's very proud when he saves a seed that could have gone extinct. And so there's this great photograph of him and his grandmother who were farmers, and they had all these vegetables and uh, in the photograph in the 1900s. And it was his recognition that over 90% of those things are now extinct. And he says, they're my family, and they're gone. And that's how he goes into, I see myself as Noah, and I have to save all the varieties to maintain them for the future for plant breeders. And it really, looking at this incredible person who's dedicated his whole life to saving seeds in particular that could go extinct is it's an amazing endeavor because most of us don't really think about the seed dilemma the seed problem going on and here's a person that has dedicated his whole life and he's so passionate about it and that's really what we look for in in a character or a subject in the film is like who could really carry this story about seeds so a general audience could really appreciate it and understand uh, this dire situation that we're in. You go on to profile other families. Uh, there's one uh, family, I believe, in Iowa. Uh, but some of these seed savers and organizations that are around the world, I was curious how they might work with the seed vault in Norway. Uh, most people have heard about it as uh, referred to as the doomsday vault. Yes, um, seed banks are uh, crucial. There's around 1,700 seed banks around the world. Svalbard up in the Arctic Circle, up in Norway, is the biggest uh, seed vault at the present time in the sense that many of the countries around the world send their major collections to be stored in Svalbard. And that's the backup. And we have Fort Collins in Colorado. We have Native Seed Search in Arizona, which is featured in the film about the Native Americans. Many of their corn has been saved from a collector named Gary Nabham before many of these seeds kind of disappeared too. So what is incredible, if you seeds are a living organism, they're living embryo, so to speak. So for them, um, they have to be grown out every 10 to 20 years often. Otherwise, their germination won't occur. So that's what's really crucial with these seed banks is that many of the seed banks don't have the funding to grow out many of the seeds that they're storing in there. So many of the seeds could go extinct, so to speak. And this is what happened when they did the Rural Advancement Foundation did that survey where they found 94% of the seed varieties in the Fort Collins seed bank had gone extinct. And, you know, it's, it's really 
kind of scary when you start thinking about like many of these varieties um, have shrunk from like two or three hundred different varieties down to just a handful. And that goes with cauliflower from uh, asparagus and, and artichokes and many lettuces and tomatoes. Many have been lost over this time. It's a really kind of like a wake-up call for the whole seed world because many of the seeds are controlled by, you know, Monsanto or Syngenta or Bayer, and they control more than 50% of the seed varieties, uh, commercial seed varieties in the world. So it's gone from the hands of the farmer to the hands of the corporations. And this film is sort of showing these really incredible heroes. I see them like saving seeds, keeping them in the hands of the public where they're more open pollinated seeds and shared freely amongst each other. How difficult is that to do these days because of seed patents? Well, it's quite difficult when you, when seeds are patented, you aren't allowed to grow them out and to sell them. So it's, a, it's extremely difficult things when seeds are bought and owned from these chemical corporations such as Syngenta, Bayer, Monsanto. So they're designed so the farmer always has to come back to the seed company to buy their seed. And if you think about pre-1920s, most farmers saved their own seeds or they shared the seeds amongst each other, the farmers. Now, with hybrids and with genetically modified organisms or seeds, the seeds, you have to go and buy them. You sign contracts to license those seeds, so you can't save them. For the general gardener, there's more open-pollinated seeds, so you know we could keep those kind of freely distributed, and that's why there's you know, many seed libraries that have sprung up in the United States, over 500 seed libraries within libraries themselves, where local people have their gardens and they, they grow their tomatoes and they bring the seeds and they put the seeds in the seed library, and then somebody could check those seeds out and, and then have that variety go to seed and bring those seeds back. And so it keeps a real localized seed collection going, a very vibrant seed collection going. And that's how I think we're going to really revive this dependency on the big corporations controlling our seeds back to the people that are, it's where it's bioregional and it's for the people and it's, it's for the, the growers that can do this very freely. This is where we live. I'm speaking with Taggart Siegel, co-director and producer of Seed, an untold story, also founder and executive director of Collective Eye Films. Uh, in your documentary, you speak to uh, Native American tribes, including the, the Hopi tribe in Arizona. Uh, tell us about their tradition, their deep connection to the corn that their people have grown uh, for many years. Well, Lee from the Hopi Nation when I went to film him, and it was a great honor to actually go to the Hopi Nation to film because they really don't like to be filmed generally, especially the rituals and ceremonies. But Lee kind of believed in our project. He also is worried that his seeds that go back 8,700 years, corn was developed in the Oaxaca Valley in Mexico, 
and took 5,000 years to get to the border of the United States, and then seeds went everywhere around the United States. And the Hopi were able to take the corn into their cosmology, into their web of life. And this is where I really learned that corn is, the, you know, the spiritual people, he says, gave us the corn. You know, it's in the womb, it's human people, are seeds. And he even says that these corn seeds are my children. You know, they, they, I'm daddy to them and I'm, you know, the caretaker. So there's so much love and dedication in their culture around seeds. And so when a corporation genetically modifies it, the indigenous population, indigenous people especially, are very concerned about their, almost their heritage being contaminated. Um, speaking of these big corporations, uh, part of your film talks about the, the history of, of hybrids. Um, and you spoke to someone named Bill McDormand, executive director of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Let's hear a little bit from him. Hybrids were bigger and better, produces more. Success is yield. Hybrid companies fueled that fever to get the biggest and the best. Corn contests was rampant throughout the Midwest. You were measured not by how many times you went to church. It was how good a corn you grew. Everybody was winning that had hybrid corn. Talk to us about what you learned about this role of hybrids, how that impacted our seed diversity today, Taggart. Well, hybrids came in around the 1920s or 30s, and seed breeders basically accomplished some almost miracle with hybridizing, creating the F1 hybrids. And in doing so, they could grow, you know, the yields increased immensely, like corn yields suddenly the bushels of corn was was higher and so they were were getting more money and then there was this intensity around hybrids that they were bigger and better and stronger but sometimes they're bred to yield more but they're not bred necessarily to have more nutrition so that often the nutrition is bred out of it and so many of these you know, hybrids become more and more dependent on fertilizers and external inputs that creates a, I would say, more of an addiction to using the chemical fertilizers, the industrial chemical fertilizers. So farmers stopped saving their seeds. It was this abdication of responsibility of saving seeds from generation to generation. Suddenly they went and bought their hybrid seeds. They didn't have to save their family seeds anymore. And this is where many of the seeds got lost. I would say that that's where that part of that 94% of seed varieties got lost in that abdication of responsibility of saving seeds. And this is when, like in the, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, the big corporations started buying up the Monpa seed companies. Over 20,000 seed companies actually got bought up by these big, you know, Monsanto and companies like that to control the seed varieties. 
Now, uh, later in the show, we're going to talk a little bit more about the debate surrounding GMOs and, and genetically modified seeds. But in your research for the film, Taggart, you know, there is also the pro-GMO side that says there are benefits given, you know, how many people there are on the earth, how many uh, mouths there are to feed. Uh, what did you find out about both sides of the debate that maybe gets lost uh, in, in um, the headlines? Well, when the United Nations did their study, they found that it wasn't that the, you know, the industrialized model of farming wasn't the way to feed the billions of people, but in fact, it's the small farmer that could actually feed the billions of people out there. And so it's really keeping these farmlands intact for small indigenous people and for people around the world to actually feed themselves. And, um, you know, there's certainly benefits from um, being able to do things on a large scale. But I think what happens is that you start using a lot more pesticides. And I think that's where there's so much damage occurring from the monocultures and then the pesticides with Roundup. And they even use the neonicotinoids on the seeds, on even wheat and corn and soy that is systemically in the plant itself. So when the pollinators come to get the pollen, it has neonicotinoids, which is it kills pollinators. And so there's this dependency on pesticides. And so I, I really feel that that's where the use of pesticides is so damaging and so cancer-causing around the world that organic farming supports more fair use of seeds. And so generally, overall, I, I really feel that that's the future that we need to, to go. I've been speaking with Taggart Siegel, co-director and producer of Seed, an untold story, and founder and executive director of Collective Eye Films. Taggart, if our listeners want to see your documentary, where can they go? Yes, um, you could come to seedthemovie.com, and that's S-E-E-D, themovie.com, and um, you could download it, you could buy the DVD, but you could also see it on iTunes and and, um, other forms of, of distribution. So it's going to be on Netflix coming up very soon on for DVDs. Well, Taggart, it's a fascinating film. Thank you so much for giving us a little preview of it. Great. Thank you so much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When we come back, we'll hear from one of the people in Taggart's film, a botanical explorer with ties to Connecticut. Joseph Simcox travels the world in search of seeds underutilized in our diets. We're going to hear from him after the break. Stay with us. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about seeds and their future on a planet where much of our vegetable seed varieties have vanished. Coming up, we'll hear from an eighth-generation Connecticut farmer about the choices his family has made over the years to sustain the family farm in Bethany, Connecticut. Now, planting for many of us means buying seeds in little packets at the store or buying seedlings from the local nursery. We heard from see about seed savers in the last segment. Are you one of them? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. 
Our next guest is working to find more edible plants to expand our diets. He's a seed hunter who travels the world. Joseph Simcox is a botanical explorer, consultant for Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, which owns Comstock Ferry and Company in Wethersfield, Connecticut. Uh, Joseph's on the line from Mexico. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, You're a little hard to hear, so I'll ask you just to speak up a little. But first, just tell us, how did you get so interested in seeds? Uh, Again, you're called the seed hunter. Well, I am known as the seed hunter. The the amazing thing about this is I never took note of it because I started when I was four or five years old, and it's been a lifetime occupation. So it's something I never thought about. But the more people find it fascinating that someone has been collecting seeds for so long, the more I've thought about it. And I think the biggest and best answer for you is that nature holds some incredible fascination for us human beings. Now, to give our listeners an idea of your passion as a child, I I believe you once asked for your birthday, you wanted uh, seeds? Seeds and squash. I think it was the squash first. It's kind of like the question whether (laughs) eggs come first or the chicken does. And so in this case, I asked my parents for squash for my birthday. And that little story has been passed around a few times now, but the seeds that I extracted from those squash kept replicating themselves even to this very day. Now, you travel the world. How many years have you been doing that, looking for edible plants, things that are not in our diets, our regular diets today? Well, that's the fascinating thing, because as we think about what we eat, it really seems that we have a lot of variety. But when you compare it to nature's treasury, it seems that we are eating only a pittance, a few hundred species of plants rather than a few thousand species of plants. So we have a lot to discover But going back to nature. I've been doing this for roughly 35 years, a long time. Uh, We know that uh, the U.N. has studied food security, uh, this idea that by 2050 there will be millions more uh, mouths to feed. Uh, There's a a reliance on genetically modified crops because they can produce uh, greater yields. But in your uh, your experience, Joseph, um, how can we... uh, grow more food without impacting biodiversity? Well, okay, first of all, let's answer a few of the issues that are so pertinent to our day and ask the questions why we believe some of the things that we believe. Part of the reason we believe that there are going to be so many more people in the world is because we project the logistics of population growth. In reality, many parts of the world are declining in population and are hoovering at maybe insupportable levels. Take the country of Italy, for example. A few years back, 500,000-plus people died in Italy, and only 250,000 people were born. So that tells us that not all of the logistics are exactly what we believe them to be. The other thing is the idea of not being able to feed the world is very dubious to a person like me. I've been to 110 countries, 112 countries now, in my food research, And unlike the experts who make these assertions, I've seen firsthand in in a way that I think is very practical and very uh, a simple approach, a practical approach, but also one that asks the big question. Because the big question is something that a specialist doesn't necessarily deal with. And this is why I find academia in some ways to be daunting in its pursuit of bigger truths. First of all, a lack of practical experience me having gone to 112 countries actually studying what this is puts me in a camp of 
being a generalist. And there are very few generalists in the world today. So when we discuss the big issues, often I find that we're repeating what somebody else said without really having tactical and tangible knowledge of what we're talking about. We're repeating other people's um, repetitions. So they become something that is so commonly held that people don't question it. We've kind of like created the truth. Mm. I believe that the future of food is actually very um, stable and very secure because humans have the opportunity by going back to nature and using things that they did thousands of years ago and rediscovering, and it'll turn out that there are going to be thousands of species of plants that they can use. So you talk about, yes. This is where we live. We're talking with Joseph Simcox, a botanical explorer. He travels the world uh, to discover uh, more edible plants. And he's uh, joining us from by the phone uh, from Mexico, where he is now. Uh, you mentioned Italy, but what about places like China and India? And if we're not talking about um, you know, all population increasing, depending on the region, what about climate change and uh, finding foods that can grow uh, that are more drought resistant? Well, certainly. I mean, even if we look at the demographics that are happening in China, they have a population crisis of another sort. Many, many, many more men than women because they've been rather selective over the years in what type of uh, children they wanted to allow to be born. So it turns out China has a demographic that's extremely strange, and there probably won't be enough women for all the men who were born meaning that their population is going to suffer as well. So in each part of the world, we see a different demographic. To answer the question about feeding these people, it's not difficult to feed the world. The utilization of the world's croplands is one thing, and that's the type of agriculture that's industrial and requires a great amount of input to produce. On the other hand, nature's been doing this for millions of years. So if we key in to the way nature does things, when you talk about climate change, it just happens that all over the world there are all different kinds of climates. I was in the desert yesterday climbing on mountains here in Baja, California, Mexico, and it was 104 degrees. Mm -hmm. To make this point a little clearer, there was a scientific research um, paper done a few years back in Arizona, and they were studying the effect of climate change on desert-dwelling plants, cacti and those bristly plants that are covered with spines that grow in these hot desert areas. And after an exhaustive five or six year uh, research project, they concluded that the desert plants, lo and behold, are not that terribly affected by climate change because guess what? In many days in the desert, it can get to be 160 degrees on the surface. So these plants are adapted. So as we look into the future and we consider the opportunities for producing food, it's to be noted that we should consider very well the ingenuity of nature before we start throwing up red flags and saying the world is going to be falling apart and everything's going to Hades in a basket. Now, when you find uh, these edible plants, again, that we may not hear about here in the U.S., how do you go about um, spreading the, the seeds, so to speak? Okay, well, before I answer that, let's, let's answer a question. In the U.S., in the United States alone, before the uh, pioneers, before the settlers came from Europe, it was estimated that the Native Americans utilized more than 3,000 species of plants in their food uh, cornucopia. So over time, those foodways were eliminated. 
rather than sit here and be sad about what actually happened, it's more important to be fascinated by what the future holds. So even in the continental United States, there are probably some 2,500 species of plants that we as Americans have the opportunity to use. So how do we do it? You mentioned collecting seeds. Part of the, the thing that we have in, in our future is going back to nature and actually being curious, to pay attention to that which is around us. If we are in Connecticut, we can go into the forest, we can go into the fields, and even on the sides of the road, and we can find plants that were used by our great ancestors of the land, if we should call them that. For example, cattails. Along many of the, the, the highways in Connecticut, there are cattails growing. Very few people will make note of that, but cattails happen to be one of the most extraordinary food resources that the world has ever seen. You can eat everything from the pollen to the young tender cattails to the shoots to the rhizomes. You can even make flour out of it. So it's an extraordinary food plant. So when we collect these seeds, when we collect pieces and parts of plants for propagation, we're able to share them with other people. And in a certain way, we can spread the news, the message, and the joy. But how do you get people interested in eating cattails? Well, they should try them. I mean, this is, this is the first thing. I mean, the, the, the fact that we've become so limited in our diet is rather uh, sad because we've been trained to be that way. That's not how humans used to be. It, it's very fascinating that if you go to some of the more uh, elegant and uppity food um, markets, you'll find in the, in the aisleways magazines that are promoting the paleo diet. As it turns out, the paleo diet is nothing more than what our hunter-gatherer, forager uh, friends of the past used to do. I mean, they used to go out and collect food in nature. So we're kind of trying to emulate that, and it's fascinating and it's chic, but we aren't really thinking that that's the way us humans were, shall we say, programmed in the beginning, to find food and to survive. Mm. But we have to go back to understanding food as an intricate link with our connection to nature, not as something that comes out of process can. You know, Andy Warhol had a very interesting uh, comment about his painting that became famous for its banality. If you remember that uh, painting with the Campbell soup cans, a lot of people originally thought he was somehow idolizing, you know, the idea of, of industrialization, but in fact, he wasn't. He was actually saying that we had turned food into a fetish. We had turned food into a subject or an object, and it was no longer some intimate contact that kept us alive. The, the distant past and everything had been put into a can and had been depersonalized. We have to go back to personalizing food. Today on Where We Live, we're talking about seeds and our connection uh, to them. Also on the phone with us, uh, Joseph Simcox. He's a botanical explorer. He travels the world, um, has an adventurous palate. He's also a consultant for Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, which owns Comstock Ferrying Company in Weathersfield, Connecticut. I wanted to bring another voice into the conversation. Uh, joining us by phone is Tamar Haspel, food and science journalist, uh, also a Washington Post columnist. You've probably read her column before, Unearthed, and also an oyster farmer on Cape Cod. Tamar, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Glad to be here. You're a veteran food and science writer. I'm sure you've been able to hear uh, Joseph Simcox on, on the line. What do you think about the work he's doing and how critical uh, it is when we're talking about expanding our, uh, our uh, biodiversity? I'm a huge fan, and uh, I also feel like an underachiever because the only thing I remember asking for for my birthday was a Tonka car carrier. <laughs> 
But I think he's absolutely right that there are all kinds of plants out there, and we are just scratching the surface as to what those plants can do, the qualities they can bring uh, to, to help weather climate change, the nutritional value they have. I'm a huge fan of the work he does, and I also admire his single-minded persistence. So, Joseph, I saw you in the movie, and I'm very glad to meet you. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to finding out more about your work. Now, the movie that Tamar is talking about, we just spoke to one of the co-directors earlier in the show. It's uh, called Seed, the Untold Story. It's a documentary, and we'll have information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. But Tamar, um, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about uh, this idea, again, about uh, the future of our our food. And yeah. when we hear about genetically modified crops, again, it, uh, people fall on either side of this debate. Can you explain the controversy and uh, the, the balance done that each side uh, tries to make uh, in their arguments? Absolutely. And you're right that I think probably the single most important thing about GMOs is the extent to which it polarizes people who care about food on both sides. And, you know, like any complex issue, um, and agriculture is nothing if not complex, GMOs have advantages and disadvantages. But let's start with a basic understanding of what they are. And because there have emerged over the past decade or so a lot of ways to change the genome, the genetic code of a plant or an animal, it's hard to nail down a very specific definition. But when people talk about GMOs in general, what they're talking about is plants that have had genes from another plant inserted or from another organism inserted into their genetic code. But there are also ways to edit genes that just take out genes from the plant or take genes from another version of a, of a plant and put it into the plant. So there are all kinds of ways uh, of doing this. But I think what people are really focused on in GMOs is, is transgenic, when you bring an organism's DNA into another organism. Uh, people also are concerned about the pesticides that may be used. Can we talk about that? Yes, and I think that this is probably the single most important issue when it comes to GMOs because the, the, the first, and I believe to this day the most popular in the U.S., uh, GMO is a kind that can be sprayed with herbicide and not die. And what this gives the farmer the ability to do is if he's got a field with corn that's knee-high and he's got a weed problem, he can spray with the herbicide to kill the weeds and it won't kill the plants. And in some ways, this has had repercussions, certainly that farmers will tell you are very beneficial because it helps with weed management in the field. And when this trait is, is used properly, it can even help with some climate-saving techniques. So if a farmer can kill a weed with an herbicide, then he may not have to till the soil. Tilling the soil releases the carbon, disrupts the microbial life, has uh, a detrimental effect on soil health. So sometimes these things can be used really for good, but then we also have this huge problem that overuse of this particular GMO has led to weeds that are resistant to this powerful herbicide called glyphosate. And now these weeds that are, that are uh, not being killed by the herbicide are cropping up in farmers' fields and they need new ways to kill them. And it, so it, it has led to a bit 
of an arms race. And although weeds will always develop resistance to an herbicide because that's how evolution works, the widespread use of this herbicide has accelerated uh, this resistance. And when we talk about genetically modified crops impacting seed diversity, I, I think you referenced it earlier, um, this idea of, of transfer and the, the hybrid possibly taking over? Well, there are, there are a couple things going, going on. And on the one hand, here in the United States, I think that, that genetically modified seed is a part of the pattern of industrialization that does indeed, I think, lead to a loss of crop diversity for the simple reason that you have, you know, big players uh, uh, who grow the seeds, who develop the seeds. They obviously want to sell a lot of seeds. And so they focus on the crops that are most commonly grown in the United States because that's how you can sell the most seed. And so the crops that are most widely grown, in this case corn and soy, are also the ones where everybody's trying to improve them. And so this process sort of doubles down on just a few crops, and that is the enemy of biodiversity. But if we go into places that aren't the United States, it's a different picture. And, you know, I've toured Monsanto's lab where they are working on the kind of GMOs, I think, that, that come to people's mind when they think GMOs. But I also toured the lab in Africa, in Nairobi, of a scientist named Lena Trapassi. And she's working on a very different problem. So instead of appealing to farmers who are growing corn and soy, she's trying to save the livelihoods of banana farmers in Uganda. And Uganda is a place where bananas are a staple crop. They eat them the, you know, the way we eat cereals. And uh, she, what she has done is taken the gene of a green pepper, and again, tip, hat tip to Joseph here, this is a, uh, a gene that has a capability to fight a particular kind of disease called bacterial wilt, and it was developed by nature, not by a lab. And she has found a way to put that gene into the banana genome and come up with bananas that are resistant to bacterial wilt, which is destroying farms. Um, in a place where we're talking about farmers who are the poorest of the poor. Mm. And if there's one thing that I would like to try and convey to people about GMOs, you say GMO and people think Monsanto and people think evil, but a GMO is a tool. Genetic modification is a tool. If I have a hammer, I can fix my neighbor's roof or I can kill my neighbor's dog. And genetic modification is like that. It's a tool, and it can be used to accomplish great things, or it can be used to accomplish not-so-great things. And when you hear GMO, think hammer. Tamar, thank you for that explanation. I do want to go back to Joseph Simcox, who's also on the phone from Mexico, Botanical Explorer. I wanted you to just weigh in on Tamar's observations before we head to break. Yes, well, there's some very keen observations that she's given, and that is probably the general polarizing focus from either side, the pro- and the anti-GMO movement. But there's another one that I have formulated over the years, which seems to suggest that there's another approach to this, because certainly we have the technophiles, the people who are fascinated by man's ability to tinker with nature. And that is something which I definitely have certain affinities for, because I like to be a tinker too. But as I stand back and I look at why and how and what people are doing, I'm fascinated that another element of the montage is missing and that is that very few of us ever sit before a forest and say, 
oh, look at how the entire forest is in disaster. Sometimes when there's only one species of tree and a certain caterpillar attacks them, it's, it's well known that they can denude the forest. But in a forest biome where there is an extraordinary number of different species of plants growing, it's very unlikely that any singular pest or any singular enemy of any plant will take control because nature has a balance. What we've effectively done in creating these huge swaths of monoculture or whether we're over-planting bananas and relying on that because it's our major staple crop, as in Uganda, is we've set up a smorgasbord for particular pests, whether they be viruses, bacteria, or insects, or other vermin. So it turns out that we're actually fueling the problem. We're throwing gasoline onto it. So we come back in this war against nature, and we have to come up with a solution, fighting back, and we believe ourselves to be very clever. What Lena's doing by inserting... Um, capsicum genes into bananas may be admirable, but it's not the only solution. It's not like we're limited. And this is where I believe, being a generalist of my nature, have answers that other people haven't considered because nature already has all the answers. Mm -hmm. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of staple crops that can be grown in Uganda. We don't have to rely only on bananas. They cook bananas there. They eat them. They make mush and porridge and everything else with them. So there's other things that will fit the scheme. So rather than limiting ourselves, this distillation, I give a talk which talks about how we ended up with so few food plant resources. It's that we're copycats. I mean, if you ever go to a certain area of northern Jamaica, you'll notice that everyone is selling carrots. You go to another part and everyone is selling hot peppers. You go to another part and everyone's selling mammy apples. It turns out that we do this because we copy each other because we find a way to distill what supposedly supposedly works best and, and we yes joseph we're actually going to have to leave it there <laughs> okay, very good, but very i good. really appreciate you joining us joseph simcox botanical explorer consultant for baker creek heirloom siege which owns comstock ferrying company weathersfield connecticut joseph next time you're in connecticut we'd love to have you come in studio tell us more about your work thank you thank you so much and Tamar Haspel will stay with us as we continue to talk about seeds. When we come back from the break, we're going to hear from an eighth-generation Connecticut farmer. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about seed diversity, and it got us wondering about the fruits and vegetables we buy at the local farmer stand or in the weekly CSA share we may pick up. On, on the phone with us is Tamar Haspel, who's a food and science journalist, writes for the Washington Post column uh, Unearthed. And joining us in studio now is an eighth-generation Connecticut farmer, Lars Demander. Uh, their farm is in the Clover Nook Farm in Bethany, Connecticut. Lars, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your family farm and the question of when you're farming, how do you acquire your seeds? Yeah, so our farm is a pretty diversified vegetable operation. We grow everything from A to Z other than tree fruit. We grow artichokes all the way to zucchini. Um, when we're selecting seeds, you know, I mainly search for three uh, important factors. It's First and foremost is disease resistance. You know, I have to get a variety that is going to stand up to the pathogens and diseases that are prevalent in our area. The next is I have to get a variety that is a marketable product. You know, you can't have a squash that looks ugly or is deformed, or you have to get, you know, some unique varieties. Like this year I grew 
uh, purple cauliflower, which is pretty unique, and it stands out in your in your retail in our retail store, and it turned out to be a great seller. And the last thing is uh, the growth habit of plants. That is, you have to look at how they're going to grow. Are they a compact bush plant where you can plant things close together? Or are they going to be a vine plant? You know, you have to take all of this in consideration when you're planning the next growing season. And another factor of growth habit would be. Uh, looking at how much foliage the plant produces. So for tomatoes, for example, you want just the right amount of foliage. You don't want so much foliage where the plant puts all its energy into creating vegetation and not the fruit, but you want enough foliage that it covers the tomatoes and the tomatoes don't get uh, sun scalded. Now, Lars, when we were talking and hearing about seed savers that are in this country, also around the world, do you seed save and, and why or why not? We, we don't. We buy new seed every year um, simply because hybrids are more reliable, more predictable as far as how they're going to perform, you know, because we have to plan the whole growing season out over the winter. And uh, hybrid seeds, you know what you're going to get. And if you, if you save seeds from hybrids, you don't know what you're going to get. So if you have a, a squash that's resistant to powdery mildew, for example, and you save that seed, Next year, if you if you plant it, some of them may or may not carry on that trait. So as a farmer, you know, we're trying to grow efficiently and effectively, and we want to make sure that, you know, we're going to have something to sell because our living depends on it. That's right. It's a business. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, when we hear about uh, the control that some big companies have, like Monsanto, uh, as a farmer, do you feel like you still have control of what you're growing? Well, as a, as a small New England vegetable farmer, I definitely do feel I have control. I, I, we buy our seeds from five different uh, small seed companies, some of them family-owned. Um, as far as Monsanto goes, again, one of your guests mentioned Monsanto is more involved in the big agriculture, the Midwest, the grain production, because that's the vast majority of production in the United States. It's uh, not some vegetables, it's just a, a small sliver. So Monsanto is more involved with you know, the grain production. So if, if you asked a, a grain farmer in the Midwest, he would probably say he does, you know, between Monsanto and Syngenta, he doesn't have much choice. Mm -hmm. But as a small vegetable farmer, I think there's plenty of choices. So many, in fact, it, you know, can make your head spin how many different vegetable varieties there are to choose from. Now, consumers often pay attention to that label organic. Uh, your farm is not organic, but let's talk about that label. Is it misunderstood in terms of what organic farmers are using uh, to, again, make sure they can grow crops to then sell? Yeah, so on my farm, I, uh, we're not organic, and I choose not to become organic, even though some of our products could be labeled as such simply because the, the label is, is misunderstood. So I, I did my master's in horticultural marketing and consumer psychology at UConn. Uh, I graduated two years ago. And in my survey, I found that of Connecticut consumers, 90%, over 90%, 92, believe that if a product is labeled organic, it means it's pesticide-free, which isn't true. So on our farm, I don't do, I don't label things organic. You know, I want to be honest with the customers and not you know, hide behind a label and mislead the customers into, you know, assuming it's pesticide-free. Uh, but can that be a challenge? Um, because people, again, if they're not educated about it, they think that, oh, or I want to buy organic. I want to support organic farms. Is that a challenge for you? I mean, consumer education is probably the biggest challenge we have. Um, yeah, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely... Um, so you mentioned consumer education. What are some other challenges of being a small farm um, in Connecticut? I mentioned you're an eighth generation uh, farmer in your family. Uh, your family has found a way to, to uh, sustain itself. What are some other challenges, Lars? 
Yeah, so I'll just talk a little bit more about our pest management. So we do a management system called integrated pest management, which is kind of a, a mix between the two sides of conventional and organic. Like one of your guests said, you know, usually people are way one-sided or way the other, and neither are the most sustainable. Or, organic farming is by no means sustainable. So I try to meet in the middle and use this system called integrated pest management, or IPM for short. And basically what it does is it is you use all sorts of different control methods from both sides of the spectrum, and you try to minimize or totally eliminate the use of pesticides. So one of the things we do, for example, is uh, on our onions, we grow onions on this silver, pla- or silver reflective uh, plastic mulch. And what it does is it, it, it does three things. It holds the weeds down so we don't have to use any herbicides. It keeps the ground moist. It locks the moisture underneath for the onions. And then also, since it's uh, a silver reflective mulch, oftentimes you see a black mulch. But in this case, for onions, they can tolerate all the extra heat that the sun gives off when the mulch reflects that. And then it makes it too hot above in the foliage of the onions for onion thrips, which are the biggest pests of onions, to come and eat the plant. So it's a totally effective method for us, and we've never had to spray or do anything for uh, onion thrips. Well, that's really interesting. I don't think people realize that there's those other options out there. But I do appreciate your time, Lars Demander. I mentioned you're an eighth-generation farmer. We're almost out of time. Is there anything you're growing at Clover Nook Farm that your uh, ancestors grew when they first started? Uh, I mean, we're still growing corn. Um, my my great-grandfather was actually quite involved with the Connecticut Ag Experiment Station when it first started. And a lot of people don't know that the first hybridized corn was actually developed at the Ag Experiment Station. And, uh, yeah, if we, if we planted the plants that were planted 100 years ago, we wouldn't have the success that we have today because mm-hmm. they're not adapted to the current pest issues, the diseases, and climate changes is the other issue. Well, Lars Demander, again, from Clover Nook Farm in Bethany, thank you so much for coming in and telling us a little bit about your farm. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Also, Tamar Haspel was on the line. Uh, we're almost out of time, but thank you, Tamar. Food and science journalist writes for the Washington Post column, Unearthed. Today's show is produced by Jeff Tyson. Thanks to WMPR intern Tim Cohen. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>